Well, greetings. You are on the Front Porch Podcast. This is your host, Isaac Adams, and I am sitting here with Thabiti Onyabwile. Thabiti, you want to say what's up? Hey, what's up? Thanks for joining us on the porch. Thank you all for coming up. Uh, we usually talk about a number of topics, and T, you and I have been going back and forth on the Pastor and Pop. Pastor and People podcast, and that's a separate channel. Today, we're just on the Front Porch channel, and we're doing a bit of a special, right? Given the wake of Ferguson and all the things that have happened, you've been writing a lot about it over at the Gospel Coalition on other blogs. We've had other bloggers. I've written about it. We had a sister named Jadine up on the Front Porch. She wrote about it. So we've had a lot of conversations, but you and I thought it would be appropriate then to have just a verbal conversation back and forth uh, about some of the things you've written lately, especially now as we've seen what the grand jury has done or hasn't done, we might say, right? So your, recent, your most recent post, today's November 26th, the day before Thanksgiving, your most recent post is entitled, Why I Believe the Grand Jury Got It Wrong and Injustice Triumphed, right? And you wrote this over at the Gospel Coalition. And we'll post, we'll have that uh, link to in the post and all that. Uh, and I just kind of want to base that, go off of this for the basis of our conversation and add some conversation to this, conversation that can flow out of this to see what you think. And then I might even at times play devil's advocate. I might ask questions from the other side. I in no way <laughs> am smart enough or versed enough to represent them fi- uh, entirely fairly. But I'll just try to prod a little bit at different things uh, just to hear your opinion. So let me just go off the introduction of this post, and then we can get into a conversation. So you said, the United States continues to process the recent grand jury decision in Ferguson, Missouri, as protests gain, as protests gain steam across the country and interested persons pour over grand jury documents. The debate seems to only gain steam, and the sides seem to further entrench themselves. As you've written and tweeted, a number of persons have said they don't understand your position or they think you're acting out of bias, T. That's what you said about yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you think this is a moment for public discourse and that such discourse actually strengthens the public when it happens well. You want to lay out your view of the grand jury process and why it looks unjust to you. Mm -hmm. So the main item you kind of want to discuss here is why this grand jury process looks unjust and this situation of Ferguson. So I'm going to turn it over to you, and then uh, we can interact. Yeah. Well, let me first say that um, it's important for us to recognize a number of things. Anytime we're looking at an event like Ferguson and, and the events around it, uh, first off, we have to recognize and appreciate this is Thanksgiving. There's a reason to give thanks to God about uh, the bounds of our habitation. We have to appreciate that we do live um, in, in a land of law, under the rule of law. Praise God. This is not a place where the king is law. It's a place where the law is king. Uh, And that's for everybody's safety. And that's a blessing from God. Uh, It is God's good providence that we live in a country with the constitution that we have and the laws and framework that are established. Uh, And it is normally the case that that, um, upholding that law is going to uphold um, good uh, for everybody. And so first thing to do is acknowledge that. And it's in that spirit that I write. Second thing to acknowledge is that um, whenever we have a conflict like Ferguson, we're not just viewing conflicts over an outcome. We're watching again the colliding of hopes. So everybody watching this, with any interest at all, is hoping for something. They're, They're hoping for justice as they understand it to prevail. 
They're hoping for righteousness to reign. They're hoping that the bad guy gets caught, the good guy gets exonerated. Um, they're hoping for some redress. Everybody is coming to this with some hope. And that's part of what defines the depth of disappointment um, is, you know, what famous poet, what happens to a dream deferred. So in these instances, in these collisions, we're seeing some dreams deferred, um, whether it's, it's a dream for um, this outcome or that outcome. Part of what we have to be honest about is we're having a discourse, if we're able to have a discourse, about our hopes for the country and our lives in this country. And, and you, you shouldn't douse a man's hope um, without understanding it, which is why I think this discourse is important and, and that these, these um, situations become opportunity for discourse if we don't give ourselves over to a certain kind of civic immaturity um, where we think that any disagreement is opposition or where we think that anyone who disagrees with us and somehow um, necessarily has fallen from grace or has stooped to some uh, unjust motive uh, or who needs to be lowered in our estimation simply because we disagree. We have to do the hard work of understanding other people's perspectives, the harder work of listening long when we disagree, uh, and the good work of reflecting them accurately and then engaging. And, and once we understand and once we think we're right, we can be as inflexible as, as right requires, but we had better make sure we're right before we're inflexible. Um, and so my, my heart here is to lean into this, um, try to be as right as I can, and, and try to take a stand strongly where I think I'm right, uh, and be humble enough to engage and hear people push back. You know? I see. So T, if I can just ask then, what, you're, what I hear you saying is that to be mature about this then is to assume the best at the onset, mm -hmm. and to also not assume too much, and to listen a lot mm -hmm. so you can understand yeah sympathize and empathize, and then take feedback or give pushback. Yeah. But the problem is, of course, we're all sinful and we're all fallen. Mm -hmm. We have a proclivity to ourselves, mm -hmm. selfishness, mm -hmm. and we have a proclivity to assume the worst, mm -hmm. to, not, to speak very quickly, mm -hmm. to not listen, right? Mm -hmm. So you are saying, let's put the swords down at first and hear each other out, mm -hmm. and then let's make our statements correct. Yeah, because I think... What we're watching is this sort of kinetic discourse of, of sin. We, we're watching sin in motion. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's everywhere, and it's in all of us, and it taints everything. And so we had better be chastened by our doctrine of sin, uh, enough at least to say, I could be wrong. I could be missing something. And even to say, as best I know my own heart, because our hearts are deceptive, right? And so we need some humility here, even as, even as we then say, no, I want to make this argument passionately and, and as forcefully as I can within the bounds of good Christian behavior. Right. And we're allowed to disagree and we're allowed to not attach moral value yeah. to our disagreements, yeah. which I think is often lost, right? Yeah, so absolutely. because I'm naturally selfish, you disagree, I've now attached moral value mm -hmm. to your disagreement, which might be the absolute truth, and yeah. I might be wrong. Right? Yeah, I, you know, I chuckle, and, and, and then I'm saddened by the people who have tweeted to me to say, um, you, you're just another Al Sharpton, mm -hmm. you know, or say you're a race baiter, or, and, and you know, I'm not discouraged by that because it, you know, I go, this guy didn't know me at all. If, if, if that's what he's taking away from, from my post here, 
then he hadn't read and, and considered a whole lot of other things that the Al Shoppings would be angry with me about, you know. So, uh, so we need some maturity. But let, let's, let's talk about this, this, um, this grand jury situation um, and, and its decisions because really that grand jury procedure um, became the sort of pivotal point for everybody's hopes for whatever they thought justice looked like, right? And that's where the collision happens. Um, and, and that's where we're liable to make other mistakes about what happened or didn't happen or to assume the worst about one another. And I think it's important that we begin with at least a few basic statements uh, about what this process entails. Uh, I'm no legal expert, so I'm depending on you know, the, the articles of other experts uh, who've written about it and, and trying to summarize it in a common man's perspective. But from my vantage point, there are three important players in this process. There's the grand jury itself. Uh, the United States is the only country in the world that still uses grand juries as a matter of course. Um, it's another indication of the rule of law and, and a process to be thankful for. That grand jury is made up typically of 12 to 23 citizens whose identities are kept secret. Uh, it's, a, it's a very secretive process. Uh, in order that the grand jury might deliberate without the kinds of pressures that we all saw from media and other things uh, as, as we watched Ferguson unfold. This, this allows them to do their job. Right. To be clear, T, when you say 12 citizens, you mean ordinary citizens like you and I are these specialists? I mean, lawyers are still citizens. Specialists mm -hmm. are still citizens. You mean Joe Schmo yeah, so and jury, Barbara. Jury of the peers, right? right? Um, the, the jury is convened with a particular task. The grand jury has the task of considering the prosecutor's case and whether or not the prosecutor has supplied enough evidence, not all the evidence, enough evidence to pass what's called probable cause. Now, that's really important because what probable cause means is that there's enough evidence here that a reasonable person could conclude that something probably happened, something criminal probably happened, right? Not that it did happen. Or, or not that all the evidence has been considered, but that the prosecutor has given enough substantiation of his case and the charge that he's asking for that we should proceed to trial to then assess that. Now, what's really key in that is the second main player, the prosecutor. The prosecutor normally makes a case. He's normally asking for an indictment, a charge, which normally he gets. Um, and so there's the whole joke about, you know, prosecutors, you know, can, can bring charges and get an indictment on a ham sandwich, you know, uh, you know, and, and that's because the threshold that the grand jury is operating on, when we talk about probable cause, is a much lower um, evidentiary burden than what we see in criminal trials, which is an entirely different setting, where the case has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Right here, all you need to do is, is, is establish for a reasonable man that there's enough evidence to think that something criminal probably happened. Yeah, um, and so those are those are two of the the main players: the grand jury, and then the prosecutor. And then the main sort of issue in their process is this issue of probable cause and whether or not that can be established. But T couldn't couldn't the prosecutor say? 
along with all the people who say the facts are in, right? So we have had a ton of facts come in. Mm -hmm. All the folks, that's one side. All the folks who say, let's be quiet until the facts are in. Mm -hmm. So now we have a number of facts. Michael Brown was shot at this distance, 135 yards, Mm -hmm. 150 yards. Mm -hmm. He was shot in the car. There was some kind of altercation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wilson is saying he had reason to fear for his life, right? So we have all these facts Mm -hmm. that come in. And couldn't the prosecutors then say, I have... I've dumped, I've given these, uh, the grand jury all the facts they could ever want, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know if, yeah, even yeah. if that's accurate, but couldn't yeah. he say that? And couldn't, they, yeah. couldn't, the grand, couldn't people say the grand jury had all the facts and they decided not to indict? Sure. And yeah, you, you can do that. There, there, uh, a prosecutor can present everything, as is McCulloch has done here. So in that sense, he's not done something wrong or illegal. I'm arguing he's done something uh, unordinary, and ineffective, right? So normally what the prosecutor does, uh, and, and by the way, this, this process that normally happens, it, it's liable to abuses in the other direction, sure. right? So normally what the prosecutor does is he comes to the grand jury and says, I want this charge, let's say it's manslaughter, and says, here's, here's my case for this charge. Now, it's important that we stop and ask ourselves a question, well, what do we mean when we say, here's my case? What we mean is we have assembled the facts, and not just the facts, but we've given them context and developed them into a theory of what's happened, right? Facts do not interpret themselves, right? They're they're here again as another human element in this entire process. No, it's the prosecutor's job to take the facts and make sense of them for the grand jury and say, this is what I think happened, and here's the evidence that gives me probable cause. And, And would you review the evidence that substantiates my case, and say, yes, there's probable cause, or to say, no, you've not made your case. That's the way the process normally works. That's not what happened here. And so when the prosecutor said to the grand jury, here's all the evidence, and I would put that in quotes because he acknowledged in the the, uh, press conference where he released the decision, he acknowledged that there were, in fact, some eyewitness testimonies that weren't included, right? right? We don't know what those were, uh, how they would have helped the case or not, but I'm just putting air quotes around all the evidence. He gave them a lot. He says, here's all the evidence. He says, here are five possible charges. And he says, you go away and come back and and give me an indictment or not. In other words, he asked the grand jury to do his job. To do his job. He he asked the people who were not trained or equipped to take all the evidence, build a case, and recommend a case back to the prosecutor. That, that, that was to flip the system on its head, right? If he thought there was no case to be made, what normally happens is it never goes to the grand jury. He comes out to the press conference. He faces the cameras. He says, I don't have enough to make a case. He takes the bullets. He takes the darts. He takes it. That's what he gets paid for. That's leadership. That's what should have happened if he believed that Wilson, uh, in fact, had acted appropriately or if he couldn't go that far in favor of Wilson, if he believed he didn't have enough evidence to actually make a case. But couldn't he say that he offered five charges for the grand jury to consider and that was enough context? Would, or would he say that? But, well, the charges, range, the charges are so wide-ranging that it's actually communicating no information. It's the same as putting all of the evidence on the table and uh, putting it on the table in such a way that all of it seems to be of equal amount and worth. And so the task of the jury is to weed through it. This is why it took the grand jury 100 days to come back when normally uh, a grand jury convenes and reaches an indictment or not in hours. I see. In hours, Isaac. Less than a day, certainly. Um, And so this whole process is not working 
the way it normally works. It's not, it's not illegal for him to have done that, but I think it's an abdication of his duty. Uh, and this is why many folks like myself look at this process and go, uh, no, this is not just. Right. Uh, procedurally, this is not just. And that's quite apart from whether or not the grand jury got it right. right. That's just to say procedurally, this is not happening as it ought to happen. So something, so something can be legal, just to be clear. Something yeah. can be legal and be unjust. That's right. It can I mean, be legal and be unethical. Exactly. Right. And exactly. that's usually where injustice happens. That's exactly right. right. So, so we would argue, as Bible-believing Christians, that um, abortion is legal, right. but it's immoral, unjust, and a whole lot of other things. But it's legal. right? So the fact that he did something legal doesn't make it moral or just or right. doesn't even mean he was doing his job, which I'm arguing he didn't. Right. So you've got this grand jury sitting under this mountain of information and they've got to make sense of it and try and reach probable cause. And that's where I think is the major, the second major failure, uh, at least from where I sit as, as a citizen with no special skill right. in, in, in sort of like the grand things. jury. That's right. Like, <laughs> like members of the grand jury right. and like everybody else in the court of public opinion. Right. right. That's where I sort of go. Okay. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. I'm not omniscient. I'm not God. But I can look at this information and I can construct a scenario that seems to me as a reasonable man, I like to think of myself as a reasonable man, seems plausible and would, I think, meet the bar of probable cause. The grand jury wasn't presented a case. That's not their fault. And they didn't develop a case, which wasn't their job. Um, and, and that's why I think that the issue of probable cause, the test of probable cause, wasn't met. So let me, if I can, try and lay out a, a, a case, sure. uh, a theory. Not that I'm saying this is what happened, but this is possible. And, and if I were a prosecutor interested in right. an indictment here, this is how I might have approached the facts as we know them. And right? presented it to the grand jury. And presented it to the grand jury. I, I might have sort of said, just hypothetically, uh, I might have asked him to come back with an indictment uh, on the charge of manslaughter. Right? And I might have made this case, that Officer Wilson approached uh, Brown and uh, a friend uh, shortly before noon on Saturday morning. Uh, there had been a report of a robbery, so on and so forth. Brown fits the description. Uh, it's unclear to me whether or not Wilson knew all of that, by the way. Earlier on, um, in, in the sort of press reports in the days and weeks that followed, uh, we were first told that Wilson had not received that call because he was attending to something else. He did not know that. But that, let's leave that aside for a moment. He approaches Brown. DNA evidence, blood evidence, uh, bruises on the officer's face. Uh, a gunshot wound to the thumb of Brown uh, with powder burns from the gunshot uh, indicate that there was a struggle at the car. Brown was wounded at the car, at least on the thumb. Uh, may have been a second wound in the car as the officer fired in fear for his life. Brown then flees the officer's car, flees as far as 150 feet from the car. Right. And let me, let me just stop you there real quick, T, because you're not denying then that there was some altercation not and even all. potential aggression on Michael Brown's not part. So for anyone saying that, you might be saying, well, he did nothing wrong. You're not saying that. I don't want to be... Not saying that at all. all right. Not saying that at all. I'm just trying to reconstruct right. what we think we can know, right. a possible scenario right. from the facts as we have them and the eyewitness testimonies as, as we have them. So there are two eyewitness accounts, for example, uh, about the scrap at the car. 
Uh, Brown's friend alleges that Wilson grabbed Brown and somehow pulled him into the car. Now, that sounds kind of bizarre, uh, and one might question that, until you recognize that maybe Wilson had come to a rolling stop. And, and maybe Brown, these are all maybes, right? right. These speculations. Right. Maybe Brown had said something aggressive. Perhaps Wilson had reached yeah. out and grabbed his arm, or perhaps Brown had reached in the car. And just the, the sheer force of a car rolling at one or two miles an hour right. would, would, would sort of look like pulling a man into a car. Right. And right. just from the facts that I saw that Wilson was quoting, he said that Brown told him essentially to yeah, F off. off. Right, right, right. So that would be, I think, seen as aggressive. Assume, by, assuming we believe the testimony. Sure, right. right so right, this, is, this right. is part of the problem, right? So right. eyewitness evidence is not factual evidence. Right. And eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. And this is why in all the eyewitness testimonies, you've got so many sort of variants uh, on the story. Uh, we got to keep that in mind. That's not the same as facts, right? right? Uh, so anyhow, no, I'm not doubting the tussle at the car at all. And I'm not doubting that perhaps in that moment uh, Wilson felt for his life in that, in that wrestling match at the car. Um, but the next thing we know, facts that are not disputed, facts that are presented uh, by the prosecutor himself, is that there is blood stains 150 feet away from the patrol car. That Brown had run at least that far, because that's where we have the blood spattering, that is, for, for sports fans, that's the 50-yard line. That's, that's half the distance of a football field, right? The next thing we know in terms of facts that are not disputed is that there were multiple shots fired. So at some point, Wilson exited the car and continued to fire at Brown as Brown ran without one shoe away from the police car, wounded, right? Uh, the audio recording records, I think, at least 10 shots being fired. The next set of facts, which are not in dispute, everybody accept these facts, I think. Both sides. Both sides. Yeah. Brown's body falls 135 feet away from the police car. So somewhere around 150 feet, Brown turns. The testimony of his friend is that he raised his hands and said, uh, I give up, don't shoot. Don't shoot. Right? He not only turns, but he has to cover the 15 feet from where we have blood at 150 feet and where his body lay at 135 feet. Now, we've got two eyewitness testimonies, at least, about how that distance was covered, right? One guy reports that Brown turned and charged. I think that might be Officer Wilson's account as well. Um, Brown's friend says, he turns, says, hands up, don't shoot, and then he seemed to crumple as if shot again. And we know that Officer Wilson was still firing. He fired 10 shots. Uh, that he, he crumples. Now, that's consistent with the autopsy examination, which tells us that the final shot, the fatal shot, actually entered the top of his head, right? Which would mean he's bent over. To mean he's bent over, which is not hard to imagine if you've been shot in the torso somewhere and you, you go from hands up to sort of reflexively covering the place where you were shot and leaning over. And it's not hard to imagine that he goes from 150 feet to 135 feet either because he was charging, as some have alleged, or because in the force of turning around and, and maybe walking back toward the officer, then being shot and crumpled, he, he totters and, and stumbles and falls. Covering 15 feet, five yards, is not difficult to do that. Anybody who's watched a football game uh, and seen a receiver falling for the first down um, or a running back with even a defender on his back can see a man stumble and fall five yards, right? So 
We can, can, we can use the facts, but we've got to interpret them. We've got to construct a theory about what happened. And now we've got to ask ourselves the question, was it justifiable for Officer Wilson to feel that his life was threatened, to exit his car, to fire off 10 more shots at a man who's half a football field away? And running away, correct? Running so away. it's his back is turned to at, at least until he turns and, right. and, and as... as some eyewitnesses say, you know, raise his hands, which is a universal sign of surrender, right? right? Was, was it appropriate, was it justifiable that Officer Wilson should still feel threatened? And do we have probable cause that given those facts and given that construction of the events, right, that a prosecutor should have delivered, do we have probable cause to think that something criminal happened uh, in the shooting death of Michael Brown? Uh, and I'm saying that not presenting such a, a construction or, or, or any construction was a dereliction of duty on behalf of the prosecutor, and it flawed this process irredeemably uh, because it asked the grand jury to do a job that it wasn't, um, that grand juries aren't, aren't normally um, assembled to do. Um, and so. Right, and then that then prevented the case from even becoming a, a criminal trial that's exactly case. Right. Right. Where, where, that's exactly right. Where in the criminal trial case, it's now the, the responsibility of both a defense attorney and a prosecuting attorney to each present their cases, their, their, their versions of what happened, either in prosecution or in defense, and to cross-examine the evidence. And the jury gets the benefit of hearing those deliberations and reaching a conclusion based upon those deliberations. Well, the way this grand jury was handled short, short-circuited all of that uh, by asking the grand jury actually to become uh, the defense attorney for Wilson in this case. Right. So, so when he put, when the prosecutor McCullough put all the evidence on the table, so to speak, um, he he actually asked him to do two jobs: the prosecuting attorney's job uh, in in figuring out should we bring a charge, or the defense attorney's job in thinking about what evidence is exculpatory. exculpatory. Uh, and neither of those are the jury's job, the grand jury's job, and that's why this 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 um, verdict, in my view, and this process. Was unjust, right? And can you define that last term, exculpatory? Yeah, that's just that's just evidence that um, that exonerates or excuses um, the person being charged. Okay. So then, T, what what does? So you've presented that case. You said this is what justice might look like in this situation. So you're not even saying. Um, necessarily that Wilson be declared guilty. No, not at all. Because what happens is, let's say I'm the prosecutor and I present that case, I didn't have to say, and here's my evidence for believing that. I got to give them the credible, I, the, the eyewitness testimonies that I think are credible. I got to give them the other evidence, DNA, you know, forensic, that I think supports that construction. Then the jury, they don't just necessarily sign off on what I say. They've got to look at the evidence and say, we think there's enough or we don't think there's enough to move forward with an indictment on this charge. They're not even saying, we think this sticks. They're not saying this proves that he's guilty, just that we think you are enough to obligate the time of the court, that you've given us enough evidence to obligate the time of the court and to suspect that this man uh, has probably done something wrong. So then, T, not asking what would make you happy, but I'm going to ask that in a second. (laughs) Uh, But I know you've studied in the past people's, frankly, their happiness 
at court dealings and dealings with grand juries and such in the legal process, right? You mm-hmm. have a background in that. Uh, I know you wouldn't claim to be a superb specialist, but you've at least studied it. You've worked in it, I would say, more so than the average person. Mm-hmm. And can you just speak a bit to, I think, what is behind people's outrage mm-hmm. And we would admit, right, wrongly expressed in the burning of buildings, wrongly expressed in violence. Uh, Can you just explain a bit why that matters when people feel this injustice, even if they're in the wrong, right? So there's a body of of social psychological literature uh, and and legal literature um, that's called procedural justice, right? You'll you'll like this. um, My mentor in college with whom I did this, this work uh, is a graduate of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Amen. There we and, go. And he studied with a couple of guys, a couple of professors, Tebow and Walker, uh, who were pioneers in this field and who were at Chapel Hill. Um, basically, what the theory of procedural justice says is this: that whenever you have a situation where there's going to be a winner and a loser, right? So there's not there's not the possibility of win-win. They're non-correspondent outcomes. That whenever you have that situation, um, that Persons' perceptions of fairness or justice, they go up or they go down, depending upon their perceptions of the fairness of the procedure. So if the procedure is seen to be just toward all parties, then whether you win or lose, you tend to report higher satisfaction with the outcome, right? If the procedure is perceived to be unjust, um, then usually whether when you win or lose, you, you, nobody's happy with the outcome, right? Um, here's another place where this theory was applied, and particularly in the research of, of, of my uh, mentor and, and um, committee, one of my committee members, Dr. Rupert Nacoste. He applied this just to switch the scenario, for example, to affirmative action. His, his, that was his area of expertise. Um, and so here's what we learn when it comes to affirmative action and procedural justice. People are happy with, say, college admissions decisions where the procedure makes race a factor, but not the factor. And a factor along with other factors that are, that are say, meritorious, grades and extracurriculars and so on and so forth, that where people perceive when they know the admission criteria and they perceive it to be fair, they're actually quite supportive of affirmative action. Where they don't know the procedure and they don't perceive it to be fair, then, then the support for the results of affirmative action, they go down, right? Same thing in, in this process here with Ferguson, uh, where people perceive the process to have been fair, they're more likely to be satisfied with the outcome. Now, i got to say this. Most people perceive that the putting of all the evidence on the table was a fair, was fair thing right. to do, Right. right? right. But they, I think they're assuming that because they don't understand how grand juries normally work, right. right? So usually it's the case that we go, yeah, if we know all the information, we know all the data, then, then that's fair. That lets people make up their own minds. And frankly, people, I think, are asking you what more could you want, that's right? That's exactly right. And, and what I want to say is actually I think this would have been a good time to do business as usual. Um, and this would have been a good time if you depart from business as usual before the process begins, explain to the public why you're departing, how you're departing, so they're informed about the result that comes, right? So what struck me as curious is that Prosecutor McCulloch, in his comments uh, releasing the verdict, he began with about five or ten minutes of this ineloquent soliloquy about the problem with social media and, and news outlets, right? 
and decrying the fact that this had all been kind of vetted in public opinion. But then he chooses a process that puts it all in the court of public opinion. Okay, you can't decry it on the one hand and use it on the other, not without some explanation when you're departing so greatly from uh, what is typical practice. You've got to explain that so that people have a sense of what you're doing, why you're doing, whether it's fair, uh, and, and, and so that you give some account to what you're doing as you depart from these things. Um, and you have an informed public, have an informed debate. That didn't happen here. And that's part of what contributes to the perception that the process was not fair um, and, and contributes to the deep dissatisfaction uh, that a lot of people are experiencing. Right. And now people are expressing that deep dissatisfaction in a number of ways, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's rants with 140 characters, mm-hmm. which frankly I just don't understand, but uh, <laughs> and then uh, we've seen the actual violence, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen Ferguson literally look like it's burning down, mm-hmm. right? And we've clearly already condemned that. That's not right. That's not, we don't see any progress necessarily becoming, uh, be, be flowing out of that. So T, I want to ask you, now that um, many might say that the facts are in. Now that even the grand jury has uh, enacted or acted, however we want to put that, mm-hmm. um, what do we do now? And I, I don't want to even ask you from, for a theological answer, even though I know our theology affects everything we do. It affects mm-hmm. everything we think and say. Mm-hmm. Um, but practically, you wrote another post, I think you came out with it yesterday, about mm-hmm. here are three things we could do. Mm-hmm. Here are committees we could form. Here, here are things Obama could even help us do, mm-hmm. right, that I think are informed by your theology, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not per se completely dictated mm-hmm. by it, right? So can you just express those, and then I just want to ask for any theological applications and then uh, just biblical exhortations, what we do, mm-hmm. um, because I think it's easy for a lot of people to just simply feel daunted. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question, a fair question. You know, I think um, I do want to start with Romans 13. Um, we know that government, every government, um, both just and unjust governments, um, are, are under the purview of God's sovereignty, and he establishes governments. And, and part of why he establishes governments uh, is for the use of the sword. And what's really important for us to recognize, if we haven't really grasped it, is that this is a sword-exercising process, Right? Um, this is um, a process that is, is essentially about judgment and uh, justice and punishment and, and so on. Um, and so that's right. It's right that a government should have a process like this. And it's not only right. In our case, it's a great blessing that we have one um, that, that by all standards, I think, um, tends to work uh, toward justice more than governments that don't have. Um, such a process. And we've seen that in the Middle East, the, just the, I mean, the atrocities there of such a result. Yeah, no comparison, no comparison. So I'd I'd far rather what happened in Ferguson with this grand jury verdict than what we see in places without the rule of law, far rather. Um, And and I think that's, theologically, that's a gift from God, uh, and that's, that's in accord with God's sovereign rule, right? Now, having said that, um, I think we're also bound, particularly as Christians, uh, to do good to all people. And we're bound to, to fight the cause of widows and orphans. We, we're bound to seek justice and to walk humbly. And uh, there's, there's just so many texts um, that, that we're to use just weights, for example. I just, just, we could just run through the Bible and compile text after text that suggests to me, at least, that our posture always has to be one of, of compassion and justice-seeking. Right? And the question is, what does that look like here? Uh, and the second question is, how do you inform that biblically and not just 
via a political philosophy, right? So this ain't for me about big state, small state. You know, this ain't about those kind of political ideologies which get confused with biblical theology, right? We want to be careful of that. And so what I was proposing are, are, are sort of four um, pragmatic uh, notions uh, that, that might help the cause of justice in these circumstances. Uh, one is, is that we have a, a national commission. The president uh, used executive order or something else to establish a national commission to review these procedures and to review these cases uh, and make recommendations as to how to strengthen uh, what, what we already have. Right? The second is that um, we enact federal legislation that requires body cameras. It's an inexpensive technology. Um, there is good research evidence that where body cameras are worn uh, and where they're turned on, uh, that everybody behaves differently. And as a, as, a, as a trained social psychologist, I can tell you, there's this old dictum, what gets measured is what gets done, mm-hmm. right? So wherever you shine the light, it affects behavior. Uh, and so putting things on camera, like we do in McDonald's, like, like we do with babysitters and nanny cams, like we do in uh, various other ways of surveilling employees, say, in the, in the finance industry. We do this all across the, the society. Putting these things on camera are a protection to officers, and they are a protection to people. And they tend to cause both officers and people uh, to react more calmly, more civilly, more patiently. That's a good outcome. Uh, and it's cheap. Uh, the third thing I would say is, uh, it seems to me we need some way where there's the perception of bias uh, or conflict of interest, as was the case with Officer McCullough, who's never brought an indictment against an officer, who uh, is from a family of officers, who at least is perceived, I'm not alleging that he is, but is perceived to have a conflict of interest, uh, we need a way of appointing an independent prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we do that in federal cases. You remember back to uh, Kent Starr and the, and the Clinton, uh, Ken right. Starr and the Clinton impeachment trial. Right. Well, he was an independently appointed prosecutor, a special prosecutor. Uh, it seems to me to make sense to have that at the state level um, available to persons uh, who are affected by such um, decisions but who feel that um, the, the process is biased in some way or a prosecutor is biased in some way and can make that case uh, at a reasonable man kind of level. Um, and so that to me seems to be uh, a, a good way to go forward in this. So then for biblical exhortations, right, because a non-Christian could have said all of that and praise God, right, that we all see this like these would be fair things to do, or at least I might say fair things to do, and then maybe even good things to do. And I loved your exhortation in your other post to say, great, you don't like these, come up with something Suggest better. Suggest something, yeah. Right. And Amen. let's run with it. Amen. Right? Amen. That's, yeah. but that, and that's the point of public discourse, right? Um, so I'm not here talking as if I get to pronounce on high, thus saith the beating. No, I'm, I'm speaking as a citizen like all other citizens who's working really hard to at least try to have an idea, right, um, that, that makes things better going forward. Um, and it seems to me that a lot of people who don't like my ideas aren't offering any of their own. Uh, and that may be because they think, no, actually everything worked as it ought to and nothing's wrong. Okay, great, make that case. Uh, or more often, or, or, or quite often, it's people who are just simply being um, disagreeable, honestly, uh, who, who really don't have ideas of their own, who are uh, locked into whatever political narrative they've gotten from their favorite news station, um, and they're giving, they're giving up the sound bites. 
that they've been listening to and rehearsing via those news programs for however long. That's not intelligent public discourse. Um, and, and when Congress enacted laws requiring that television stations uh, devote an hour to news programming, you know, going back some decades now, it was to inform the public discussion. It was to educate the populace because the framers understood that for democracy to work, you actually have to have an informed populace. Uh, that's not what's happening in so-called journalism these days. What, what you're getting is point of view, opinion pieces, spin, masquerading as news. And, and I think it's the most, and it happens on both sides, of the, all sides of the political spectrum, right? So this is not a conservative problem or a liberal problem. It is a problem. Um, and uh, those of us who care about justice and mercy and want to walk humbly before God, we've got to do some hard work to make sure we get good information. Um, and to make sure we're acting on that information and not just parroting what our favorite pundits proclaim. And Tia, I think that's a good exhortation to hard work because I think while there is that problem with the journalist side, there's also the problem of the consumer side because we're used to eating now 140 characters Mm -hmm. and anything more Mm -hmm. is a big meal. Oh, that's exactly right. Right. We're lazy readers, aren't we? Uh, Too many of us. And uh, as as Oz Guinness said some time back, we've got fit bodies and fat minds. Um, and uh, that that comes out. I don't think uh, that comes out most clearly in events like this and in conflicts over over things like whether or not something was racist or racially motivated or what have you. Right. Now, a sad thing, T, is I think this will because we are fed our fat minds are fed on the media's diet. Something else is going to happen, right? And maybe not even racially motivated. It might just be some other scandal. I'm thinking of the UVA scandal, the mm. horrors there, mm. right? Mm. And these things are tragic. Something mm. else is going to happen and attention will shift, right? Mm. But, that, but that doesn't necessarily mean there won't be emotional repercussions that people are dealing with mm. from this. So my question then is, for people who are genuinely trying, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. to have a fit body, maybe, but definitely a fit mind mm-hmm. on this issue, mm-hmm who simply feel daunted or overwhelmed um, or just discouraged, frankly, and who are Christians, um, what would your encouragement to them be? Just biblically, biblically, I was reading Acts 10 the other day, thinking of Jesus coming back as the ultimate judge. He is the one, the risen Jesus. He is the one the Lord or the Father has appointed as judge overall. So there is a judge coming, and I know you alluded to that in your most recent post, but do you have any other just exhortations for brothers and sisters who are weary in this process, I've seen you weary at times. I know. I mean, it's a heavy thing, right? Life has been lost. Confusion runs amok. What are we to think? What are we to feel? Yeah, uh, I'm most tempted toward weariness when um, I have sort of lost conscious um, realization of the fact that my hope is in another world, in another person, right? And uh, so the first thing is we, we have to raise our gaze, right? We have to lift our eyes from Ferguson uh, and lift them to glory, right? And, and, and if we have that hope as Christians, uh, we, we want to work, I need to work to live more confidently and constantly in that hope and to have that hope color how I engage these issues. So that, that's part of the hard work that, that has to be done. Um, the, the other thing it seems to me that has to be done is you got to stay in your lane, right? So... That text of scripture that says to us, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Um, If you don't live in Ferguson, Missouri, you don't have to live at peace with people in Ferguson, right? But you do have to live at peace with the person next to you in the pew and the person in your home who may take a different perspective on this. Uh, And the Bible exhorts us there to do everything we can to live at peace, right? That means we've got to restrain our words. 
That means we've got to restrain our hearts. Uh, that means we've got to agree to every place where we can agree, right? And make that agreement not passing and, and you know, you know, have a way of saying, yeah, I agree with that, but, and you're rushing to the disagreement. You know, make that agreement slow. Don't add the but, just add a period. I agree with that. And let that sink in. And, and keep building this scaffold of agreement so that you're affirming your affections uh, for the people who are in your lane, for the people who are next to you. And so this, this work really, in many respects, is, is local work, right? I uh, got an email today from a guy who uh, had heard that encouragement from the talk I did in Minneapolis on Ferguson. And part of what I was doing is exhorting people just to talk, talk to people. And he prayed about that. And um, he's a young African-American. He's a white guy. He's an African-American lady that works in his gym. And uh, last night, they're leaving the gym about the same time. And uh, he prayed and had been asking the Lord for an opportunity to talk to someone. So he asked her what she thought about Ferguson. They had, as he described it, a wonderful 10-minute conversation where she opened up and where she said she was glad that someone had asked her, right? And she had a chance to talk about it. And in that conversation, he got to share the gospel. Now, that's a win. I don't, I don't care what side you are on this issue, of Ferguson in particular. A brother, an average Joe, praying for an opportunity to share the gospel and asking one about Ferguson, then having enough courage to do it and humility to listen and seizing the moment to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that's a win, right? And so I would just say, yeah, don't, don't be afraid. Don't shrink back in, free, in fear. If these collisions are about hope, we have the greatest hope of all. And if we're meeting people whose hopes have been dashed because of Ferguson, we are the people who can help them reassemble their hope and place it where this world can't touch it. Um, and so, but we got to have the conversations to be able to do that. And we got to live peaceably with people to be able to do that, especially peaceably with people with whom we disagree. And we got to be able to listen long enough to be able to get to the gospel. Um, and so that, that leads me to the last thing I'll say is I just want to encourage people to stop making superficial appeals to the gospel, right? So, so when people are thinking this thing through and talking out loud about it and maybe being vulnerable and sharing some, some part of their dash hopes, you know, it, it's not a Christian response to then just sort of say, well, you know, it's all down to the gospel. Well, how is it down to the gospel? How does the gospel speak to this? And, and, and is it just the propositions of the gospel that matter? Or are there some things, some entailments, some, some, some imperatives that flow out of the gospel that mean you should do more than just refer to the gospel, but you should actually care for that person in a certain way? Um, so we've got to stop being shallow in our appeals to the gospel. And we've got to work the gospel out, both in word as we share it, but then in terms of uh, the love that the gospel requires that we, we're commanded to demonstrate. Um, and so, you know, submit to those in authority, pray for them. Um, you know, stay in your lane, work locally. You don't have to fix Ferguson. If you want to go to Ferguson and March, that's great. But if you don't feel compelled to do that, then, then feel compelled to love your neighbor as God commands, right? Um, and, and in that love for your neighbor, listen long, speak seldom, you know. Uh, we'd all be better off, if myself included, if we spoke less, right? Uh, listen long, speak seldom, be slow to anger, um, 
you know, abound in love and compassion, all those things that the Bible teaches us, you know, there's just all, just open to a page in the New Testament and it'll, it'll <laughs> give you guidance, you know, on these things. So that, that's my exhortation and, and, and we win. Our hope is in glory. Glory is coming. Christ has a kingdom where there is no unrighteousness. There is no sin. There is no death. There are no juries um, and, and no processes to be worried about. That's coming sooner than we think. That's our hope, the blessed appearing of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let's wait for it and let's work till he comes. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us on the front porch. And please stop by, come back for the, the next couple episodes, uh, Pastor and People and other things we'll be doing here. We pray that you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving and spending time with family and friends and even set, that some of these conversations might happen. But if not, have a wonderful time. Be blessed and we'll see you next time. Amen.